0: Growth and innovation, two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the Certified ETF Advisor designation by visiting cetf.org.
1: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational
0: purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves
1: risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
0: Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street, and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci.
2: All right, joining me will be Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. And I've got to tell you, we have a very interesting topic to dive into And it's one I've received a number of questions on from listeners and uh, people out on Twitter or X. And that's the Simplify Tail Risk Strategy ETF, ticker CYA, uh, which is a great ticker. But the questions I've received on this all have to do with whether this ETF was actually uh, designed to uh, cover your behind. And I would say more importantly, if the ETF was structured that way, at what cost? Because if you look at performance, listen to this, CYA is down 85% year to date, while the S&P 500 is only up 5%. And it's down nearly 100%, like literally 99.7% over the trailing one year, while the S&P 500 is up 25%. And I say was designed regarding the ETF using past tense because we just found out on Friday, CYA will be liquidating, it'll be closing. But I think this is an important topic to cover because the uh, types of questions I've received are ones such as, is this ETF broken? Is it structured properly? I've even received uh, several very simple WTFs in my uh, Twitter DMs with a picture of CYA's performance chart. And so I thought it'd be helpful to address this and who better to do so than Laura who absolutely loves doing deep dives into ETFs like this and so that's exactly what we'll do with CYA and then we'll also discuss tail risk ETFs in general. Now also joining me this week will be Greg Hall, head of U.S. Global Wealth Management at PIMCO who currently offers 22 ETFs with about 25 billion dollars in assets though of course PIMCO is a nearly $2 trillion asset manager overall. And I'm looking forward to this. Greg is going to provide us with an inside look at what they're seeing and hearing from advisors right now when it comes to their suite of ETFs. And look, when you think about this, Greg is front and center with some of the largest wealth managers out there. He truly has his finger on the pulse here. And so we're gonna find out exactly what's on the minds of uh, PIMCO's clients And then we'll certainly spend some time discussing PIMCO's ETF platform, and I also want to get into the potential benefits of active management in fixed income, which, boy, that was a hot topic at the exchange conference last week. I'm telling you, active fixed income was everywhere, and it's obviously a topic that Greg is uniquely positioned to discuss given PIMCO's ETF lineup, so we'll cover that as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with
0: Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
1: There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs they can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected.
2: Laura, it was uh, so great to see you at Exchange last week. I thought you and the Vetify team put on an absolute uh, show. It was amazing. I really enjoyed it. My question for you is, have you been able to uh, get some downtime since then? (laughs) Yeah, I think I slept (laughs) for
1: 48 hours straight after the event. It was it was, uh, you know, I, I may be biased, but I really do think it was our best year yet. And we you were still kind of tallying up the numbers in terms of registrations and attendance and everything. But uh, I know that we were year, up year over year in attendees, particularly among financial advisors. We had over 120 sponsors for the event. And my favorite that we raised over um, 30000 for the Susan G. Komen Foundation with our race walk. So um, just in the incredible year incredible energy and i'm feeling so jazzed from all of it
2: i am too you you know i always love connecting with people in person because i'm based here in kansas city but a lot of the people i, I speak to are on the coast or everywhere else and so that that's always my favorite part but i enjoyed the sessions obviously i recorded the podcast there It was just such a fantastic uh, experience Um, Okay, so as I noted at the top, I'm telling you, seriously, I have received a number of questions on this simplified tail risk strategy ETF. Again, ticker symbol CYA, which is down nearly 100% over the past year, including 85% year to date. And certainly I would expect this ETF to be down, and and fairly meaningfully so, given the S&P 500 is up. But I don't think most investors would have expected this type of negative performance. And I'm I'm sure that's why I'm getting questions on this, right? I'm also guessing that's why Simplify is closing this thing, uh, which we just found out on Friday. But let's take this in pieces, because this is a more complex ETF, and I think a more complicated situation overall. So first, why don't you explain what you believe this ETF uh, is supposed to do and, and how Simplify is going about doing that?
1: Okay. So uh, I am. I was so excited when you came to me with this topic idea, because as you said, I, I really love getting into the nitty gritty of ETFs and uh, individual ETF stories. So apologies in advance to the listeners, but I do have to get very nitty gritty today because this is a case where the fine details matter so incredibly much. Um, so CYA uses what's called a convexity strategy to hedge against Severe equity declines, and and that is the key word, the key phrase there, severe equity declines. um, Convexity is basically a strategy that is designed to outperform some benchmark in extreme upsides and or extreme downsides. Um, The cost of that performance, though, is that in normal markets, there's going to be some lag against that benchmark. So, you know, you get that U-shape of expected performance, convexity. Um, Convexity strategies very common in the institutional world. They uh, typically rely on what's called out-of-the-money options contracts to, to put into place. What out-of-the-money means is that the current price of the underlying asset featured in that contract is at a value such that the option has no intrinsic worth in and of itself. It only has worth if the market price changes. So he you know, went cross-eyed with that explanation. Don't worry. So did I when I first learned about it. And here's a good example. If you have a an option on an equity that's currently trading at i don't know fifty dollars then a put option with a strike price below fifty dollars let's say forty dollars that would be considered out of the money that put option isn't worth exercising because you know why would you ever sell a security for forty dollars when you could just sell it for fifty dollars on the open market right you wouldn't um but if let's say the market collapses and then suddenly that equity's price collapses to $20, that's a catastrophic decline in the asset. You're probably hurting a bit if that happens. Well, gosh, you're really happy if you have that put option at $40, right? You can exercise the option for $40, offset some of that catastrophic loss, and that's essentially what the option strategy of CYA was designed to do. So CYA is an actively managed fund of funds. It holds some short-term bond ETFs and some income-generating ETFs, along with near-term, S&P 500 put options and VIX call options that are deep out of the money. So in practice, what that looks like, and these details do matter, uh, it was a portfolio where the largest position was in BIL, um, the S&P Bloomberg one to three month T-bill ETF. So in Q4, there was about 80% of the fund was in bill. The uh, fund also had some minor positions in other ETFs in the Simplify suite, but they were really below 1%, so you know, very minor. Then there was that options contract portion, which for CYA was up to 20% of the portfolio. This includes all sorts of puts and put spread options and credit default swaps and interest rate features, just a whole smorgasbord of complex options products. So one more point before I take a breath. Um, if you find yourself in a position where you don't need to exercise that options contract that you paid good money for, then you're basically out of the cash that you spent to acquire the option, right? It doesn't do you any good. And there is a higher risk of that happening with out of the money options contracts, which are at a price point, right? Where they already don't have the value. They would offer a lot of value if something catastrophic happens, but if the market's good, say it's going to the upside, then that out of money contract ain't going to do you much good. So, That's what happened last year, and we can dive into that in more detail.
2: Yeah, I do want to get into the performance in more detail, but let me just try to summarize what you went through, which I thought was fantastic. So the primary holdings in this ETF are deeply out-of-the-money S&P 500 put options, and then it sounds like also call options on the VIX, correct? Right. Okay, right. and then you also mentioned put spreads and, and some other types of holdings, but it really gets into those out of the money puts on the S and P five hundred, and then it, it sounds like again calls on the VIX. So, exactly. so, so, okay. So now let's get into that performance. This this thing lost nearly a hundred percent over the past year. Again, eighty five percent year to date. So, as you look at that, what happened underneath the hood?
1: Yeah. So. If you look at the the chart, you'll see that most of the loss last year happened in Q4. It dropped about 96, percent a little over 96 percent last quarter, and the stock market had a good, strong return in Q4, the best in years. So, the higher the S and P rises, the worse that uh, that it's going to catastrophically tank becomes. You know, it's possible that maybe a just a slightly out of the money contract could still be worth it. You know, if the moment has a, a day where it momentarily dips, but if the S&P just keeps rocketing upward, then there's less and less chance than that out-of-the-money contract is going to be exercised. When it expires, you have to buy back a position in a more expensive version because the underlying asset got expensive. So in good market time, in market rebounds, and even sometimes when the market goes sideways or doesn't really do much at all, this strategy is basically a money furnace. So to be fair, Simplify says over and over and over again in our own materials – Investors should expect substantial declines in value during years without a tail risk event. They specifically warn that this could happen and would happen. But if you can take a look at CYA against other tail risk ETFs, um, you'll notice that it performed worse. Um, If you look at the Cambria tail risk ETF ticker TAIL, that fund was only down 8% over a one-year period ending uh, December 31st, compared to CYA, which was down 98%. And Global X's tail-risk ETF XTR, that was actually up 21% over the same period. So the question becomes, why did CYA perform so uniquely poorly amongst its peers?
2: Well, and, so, and yeah, and Laura, but, I mean, that's really the question I think that, um, I, you know, I've been getting. I, I mentioned at the top questions like, is the CTF broken? Is it structured properly? I I guess if we were to boil it all down, I mean, in your opinion, do you think this ETF delivered what it said it would deliver? And it's funny, you mentioned the... uh the disclaimer, disclosure they have everywhere. I pulled the exact same thing because I went to the fact sheet for this ETF and I want to read this again, you you just stated it, but the fact sheet very clearly says, due to this ongoing spend on tail risk hedges, investors should expect substantial declines in CYA's value during years without a tail risk event. And and that's exactly what we've seen, right? There's been substantial Mm -hmm. declines. We haven't had a tail risk event, but. Do you think this ETF was properly designed?
1: Such a good question. I think the question we should be asking, though, is why did all of the other tail, ET- tail risk ETFs not see the same performance as CYA? So um, let's just take a quick detour. I want to I want to dive into those two ETFs really quick that I just mentioned. XCR, for example, that holds the actual securities of the S and P five hundred stocks. And then applies protected put options as an overlay. So the options position is a long position and about 10% out of the money um, options. So, so the, the options contracts are 10% out of the money at most. And um, that limits the amount that the options contracts ever going to deviate from the underlying, but it also potentially limits the usefulness in a genuine tail risk event, right? Um, so if you're wondering why, YXTR did so well It's because it held the actual S&P 500 stocks that were going up. And so it would benefit from the rise. But if the S&P 500 crashes in a tail risk event, then those securities are actually not a great thing to be holding at that point in time. So you have to wonder if this portfolio is truly set up for the catastrophic event that it says it's designed to protect against. Um, Let's take a look at tail, right? So tail that holds cash in US treasuries and on top of that exposure it holds put options on the S&P 500 that are about 1 to or excuse me 0 to 30% out of the money so very similar to what SC, uh, excuse me CYA does but Tail only holds about 1% of its total assets in this options exposure CYA on the other hand allocates about 20% which means that the loss from buying up any options uh is is eventually mitigated but any hedging impact you're gonna see in a actual tail event scenario that's going to be muted as well for the exact same reason so you know your question being has cya delivered what it said you know it would deliver when you first came to me with this topic i admit i came in thinking we were going to do a post, like a post-mortem like forensic scientists trying to figure out who, who committed the murder but actually I think I convinced myself in digging through all these details that CYA did precisely what it set out to do. It's actually very well designed for a tail risk event. The problem is tail risk events are tail risk. They're exceptionally rare. And in a market that kept on going up or going sideways or just a little tiny declines that that rebounded, CYA never really got to prove its worth, its metal. And what it needed was a market apocalypse. That's what it's designed for. And thankfully for investors, that environment never materialized. But it also made CYA not able to deliver on its core premise. It wasn't the product's fault. It's just the wrong product for this time.
2: Yeah, the word that jumps out to me that you you mentioned a couple times earlier is convexity. And because we didn't have a tail risk event, um, this product didn't have an opportunity to demonstrate the uh, significant convexity uh, in the underlying that it has to to be able to obviously deliver the types of returns. I, I guess one of the, the challenges I have with something like this, and so let's say, you know this, this better than I do. You did a full deep dive. It sounds like you, you believe the product was structured properly, but you and I always talk about ETF education. And I feel like with a product such as CYA, some investors will look at this and say, okay, I, I get it. This is a hedge if things go bad. And they understand that it's essentially like paying an insurance premium, right? They're, they're taking out an insurance policy, and so they know they're going to have to pay a premium along the way. They expect to lose that money w- when stocks are up. I, I, I think where I struggle a little bit is my guess is most investors probably wouldn't expect to be down nearly 100%, <laughs> even if the S&P is, is up 25%. And, and, of course, there is no tail risk. Uh, event So I, I guess my question, was, I mean, should more be done from an education standpoint, or does it come back to buyer beware, you know, all of the above? W- where do you land on that?
1: Well, I think to an extent it is buyer beware, right, because ETS can be bought by anybody and you have to have uh, uh, that. But I, I think this is where having a financial advisor who really understands how to uh, construct a risk profile for their investors and understands the full picture of what risks a given investor in a given moment face. That makes all the difference in the world. So, you know, you 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 likened this to insurance, and I think that's a very apt metaphor because I actually think a tail risk uh, ETF like flood insurance. So, in New Orleans, we get hurricanes a lot. You essentially you, you kind of have to have flood insurance, but in Oklahoma you probably don't get too many hurricanes flood insurance is not as essential as it is in new orleans so while floods could happen likelihood you're actually going to need to use flood insurance at any given year in oklahoma is thankfully very low it would be a tail risk event doesn't mean that flood insurance isn't a useful product and it doesn't mean that you wouldn't be happy to have it if you did you know have that tail risk event but you have to kind of weigh the risks and the pros and the cons and the costs like is this the right insurance for me in the environment that I live in? Um, and I'd say for most investors, you know, I, I know we like to soak in the bath of doomerism these days, but economic <laughs> collapse is thankfully a very rare offense. So, you know, in theory, it's good to have options in case of catastrophic collapse, especially if you're in a position where you're going to need that flood insurance if you, you know, are living in your own uh, metaphorical New Orleans but the truth is that most of us are not going to need to be prepared in this certain way.
2: Well, and if you are an advisor trafficking in these types of products, what I will say is you better make sure you're communicating to your end clients as to the why and, yeah. you know, what the end use case is. Because think about an advisor that, you know, put on this hedge with CYA in a, uh, in a client portfolio, a clients looking at the statement and seeing it down nearly 100%. Uh, th- those are challenging optics, to say the least. Now, again, it can be explained <laughs> as, as you just walked through, but something else to, uh, to consider. But well, Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. You, you know I love doing deep dives like this with you because I do feel like you truly have a passion uh, for stuff like this. Not everyone is excited to, uh, to dig into tail risk ETFs. So <laughs> thank you for, uh, for doing that this week, and thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. Take care.
2: That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Ready to
0: level the playing field in your investment journey? Introducing QQQE, Direction's NASDAQ 100 Equal Weighted Index Shares ETF. With QQQE, you're not just investing in big players, you're investing in balance and diversity. The power of equal weighting, seeking equal weighted exposure to all of the NASDAQ 100 stocks. Say goodbye to market cap dominance and hello to a balanced investment strategy. Visit Direction.com now to learn about QQQE. Direction's NASDAQ 100 equal weighted index ETF. Equal opportunities, equal gains. Direction, get out of the ordinary. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. An investment in the fund involves risk including possible loss of principal. Distributor, 4 side fund services, LLC. Equities are the building blocks of any successful portfolio. From satellite exposure to core allocations, advisors must understand the best way to wield equities if they want to succeed. Join Vetify on March 13th for the Equities Symposium and hear from industry experts and thought leaders. Register at ETFtrends.com. That's ETFtrends.com.
2: joined by Greg Hall, head of U.S. Global Wealth Management at PIMCO. Of course, PIMCO is one of the largest asset managers in the world with nearly $2 trillion in assets under management. And within the ETF space, they've continued to expand their lineup. They currently offer 22 ETFs with nearly $25 billion in assets. Greg, welcome to the uh, podcast.
3: Hey, Nate. How are you doing? Good morning.
2: All right. So, look, a a lot we're going to uh, cover today. And as I was thinking about this, I thought the best way might be to just take a step back, because you're plugged into some of the largest wealth managers in this country. And and so to start, I'd love to have you take us through some of the conversations that uh, you and your team are having, because my sense is when investors think of PIMCO, they think fixed income, right, specifically actively managed fixed income. And and we'll certainly get into that. But I'd love to have you take us through some of the conversations you're having with that as the uh, backdrop. So what are you hearing from clients right now? What's front of mind in terms of portfolio considerations? And and perhaps you can explain your specific role as well.
3: Uh, Sure, 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 sure. And and, and I should say we certainly hope uh, advisors and clients uh, think about us in terms of actively managed fixed income, because that's where we we spend the predominance of our time. I manage the wealth distribution business uh, here in the U.S. Um, it's a it's the wholesaling operation for our mutual funds, our ETFs and other products. And, and, and as you mentioned, we spend a lot of time with the home offices of the major distribution platforms uh, talking about their strategic priorities and how we can help them and help their clients and their advisor teams. Um, and I would say... You know it's not even a contest in terms of the the question that is most prominent right now in in advisor conversations and even at the home office level, which is when and how do we uh, help our clients out of the cash balances they've accumulated over the last couple of years and into other instruments to make sure they're positioned for the next three to five years and not just the last couple of years we've all experienced.
2: You know, it's so interesting because I I do feel like that's one of the biggest points of debate and discussion right now. It's it's all around money market funds, where last year we saw, what, uh, over a trillion dollars go into these vehicles. And I think that made a lot of sense because you could pretty much scoop up 5% plus yields risk-free, call it a day. You don't have to hassle with credit or duration risk. But... To to I think what you're saying that might not be the most prudent approach moving forward, especially if rates end up coming back in. And so, talk more about that. How how are you and your team specifically thinking about that?
3: Yeah, it's it's a it's a great point. And I think the first thing to say is most, if not all, the advisors I've encountered are really sophisticated, practical people, and helping your clients move into cash given the economic circumstances that we have experienced over the last couple of years completely rational approach right it's 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 really hard to argue with the logic that you just laid out actually more eloquently than probably i can but now we're looking forward and you know economic circumstances you know maybe on the cusp of of changing uh, they'll bump around on us a little bit as we're seeing in markets in the early part of this year um, but there's a pretty strong market consensus, and, and, you know, we think a baseline view as well that, you know, we're past the peak of inflation and, and more likely to see Fed easing in the coming years than than a repeat of what we've just experienced. And if that's your base case, then we think fixed income offers a huge amount of value for investors. Um Initial yields in the fixed income market tend to be the best indicator of your, your long-term total return. Um, and I think you know, it's probably not controversial to say that starting yields right now in fixed income are as high as they've been in your or my investing history. Um, we don't think that the appeal of fixed income has to be completely predicated on a rate cut in March or May or June. Um, there's a lot of value in fixed income markets. You're getting paid to wait for that eventuality, um, and you know, with a broad view of fixed income markets, such as you know we have at Pimco, there's lots of places to create alpha um, and to identify places um, in credit markets, on rate curves globally, uh, where you think there's strong relative value. So it's an exciting place, um, and we're, we're certainly having that conversation with advisors and and we're seeing uh flows into into fixed income managers we think generally pretty healthy even as we we continue to see flows into cash so the debate is ongoing um but we've seen a little bit of a shift in attitude in recent months
2: yeah and one of the things that i think is particularly interesting here and it, it creates both i think opportunities and challenges for advisors is if you go back five-plus years, we all recall there, there were no yields uh, to to be found, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're trying, to, trying to find income and fixed income was near impossible. And so uh, for better or worse, that sent advisors looking in a, a number of other directions. But now with where yields are at, there are a lot of potential opportunities uh, across fixed income. But I think it comes down to your views clearly on on taking on duration risk, what you think about the, the economy and, and taking on, on credit risk. So th- this is a unique situation, I think, for advisors. But I think a positive one overall, because I think the average person would much rather be in this situation where there are at least uh, income opportunities versus what we saw uh, several years ago. Um, Greg, in I terms think, I mean, I go ahead. That- yeah.
3: I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's. It, I think you're right. It's a little bit of an embarrassment of riches. And I think that's why we advise, you know, our advisors that, that we speak to. You, you don't have to. It's not binary. You don't have to just jump into one end of the pool. You can explore opportunities that are a little step out from cash in the short term market. You can move a little further out on the curve. And you also don't need to uh, seek for yield as aggressively as maybe you might have wanted to four or five years ago, um, you can actually find ways. And, 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 you know, if you spoke to some of my colleagues back, back at PIMCO, find ways to, to create terrific yield on a historically comparative basis, taking less risk. Um, so it's a really, it's a really strong opportunity set. And and like you said, if you're an advisor, you can kind of pick your spot, um, and, and, and find good value for your clients in a bunch of different areas.
2: In terms of specific ETF solutions that PIMCO offers, and, and you talk about picking your spot, there there are a lot of opportunities within the PIMCO lineup to do that. But you do have one of the most popular actively managed fixed income ETFs in Mint, the uh, PIMCO Enhanced Short Maturity Active ETF, which has been out for, uh, what, going on 15 years now. It's hard to believe. I, f- I feel old. But um, from my perch, Greg, it, it looks like PIMCO has been very... Uh, methodical and strategic in how the ETF platform h- has been built. You haven't just launched products at the wall to see what sticks. And, and so I'd love to have you talk more about that approach and what the overriding strategy around your, your ETF lineup has been.
3: Yeah, sure. And, I mean, I think that that strategy is pretty typical of PINCO, um, not just in the uh, in the ETF business. We We try to be deliberate, Um, we try to have a product suite that meets our client's needs, but, you know, if you're throwing spaghetti at the wall, you're, you're distracting your, your people and your managers and and maybe distracting your clients. And so we try to be, like you said, pretty methodical about what we put out there. Um, you're absolutely right. The, the, the ETF business for us has been around since I think about 2009 and, uh, we were relatively early in in the active fixed income ETF trend, um, and we've just, I think, slowly and steadily built up that platform. Um, we have a combination of strategies that are more narrowly focused on a given asset class or a given duration profile. Um, we have some strategies that are broader in their scope um, that give us, you know, more ability to select from you know different parts of the market um and you know as of today i think gave the statistics at the outset but about 25 billion dollars in 22 products and we're we're quite happy with the suite i think you know we'll kind of continue to slowly and selectively grow from here but but no massive uh massive changes
2: i i was looking the uh this morning and i show over the past year or so pimco has expanded the etf platform by lan- launching um, a handful of new etfs so products such as PYLD, which is a multi sector bond ETF, bills B I L Z, which is an ultra short government bond ETF, and then uh, CMDT, which is a commodity strategy. Do you want to comment specifically on any or all of those? Because as I was looking at those products, I do feel like they sort of encapsulate how you're approaching the market.
3: No, no, thanks for calling them out. And, and you're right, we've, over the last 18 months, two years, we've Rounded out the offerings a little bit, um, PYLD or P yield, um, as we uh, we sometimes refer to it. Um, multi sector credit, uh, it's um, it's managed by the same team, uh, our group CIO Dan Iveson, and the team underneath him that um, you know run our multi sector strategies more broadly. Um, it's able to select from. You know global credit markets, and and it's got a design to create an attractive risk-adjusted yield for investors. We thought that was an important category um, to offer on the ETF front, um, and it's uh, as you mentioned, it's relatively new. I won't say it's at the other end of the spectrum because uh, uh, it's 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 not uh, uh, you know it's not that massively. Uh, Uh, far away from, you know, on the duration spectrum, but BILZ is, is, you know, very, very short-term cash alternative, and I think it's a good example of where opportunity meets client need, client demand, Um, you know, given where short rates are, see some opportunities in the market to do, you know, a little bit better than the typical cash or cash alternative money market fund. Um, and we're facing you know, interest from our clients and, and alternatives to those traditional strategies as well. Um, and so that product you know, has, um, has been going for you know, uh, the balance of, of last year and into this year. Um, you mentioned CMDT on the commodity side. Um, I think a pretty good example of what I mentioned earlier of you know, some of our clients want much more broadly oriented strategies. Some of our clients want products that fit more narrowly into a specific asset class or strategy or category. Um, And that's an example of of the latter, where we still think we can, you know, add considerable value, uh, but clients that that are interested in that product know that it will be playing in a certain sandbox, if you will.
2: Greg, I alluded to this uh, at the top, but I want to come back and specifically discuss actively managed bond ETFs, because I've got to tell you, Boy, this was one of the hottest topics down in Miami last week at the uh, annual exchange conference. I I, I truly felt like active fixed income ETFs were the conference darlings this year. And I I think there are several reasons for that. I think certainly the shifting market environment that we were discussing earlier. Um, I also think this might be where the most white space exists within ETFs, the most opportunity for issuers. But I, I would love to have you explain why active why should investors and advisors at least consider moving away from a, a a passive approach in fixed income
3: yeah i think it's it's great to frame this as fixed income because it's it's not etfs or mutual funds it's active versus passive in fixed income markets and then we can we can put that approach into a mutual fund vehicle an etf vehicle an sma vehicle but the of the decision, I think an advisor has to make once they've decided that they believe there's value in fixed income and that deserves to be a bigger part of their clients' portfolios, is do I believe that I can do better with active than passive? Now we are fervent believers that in fixed income, active is the better way to go. Um, historically, we think stats you know support that, um, even even in the bigger and even more so in the bigger categories. Um, And there's structural reasons why that's the case. Um, It's interesting. Most owners of bonds worldwide are what you'd maybe characterize as uneconomic. They have motivations for holding those positions that are not total return oriented. They might be central banks, insurance companies, um, U.S. banks and European commercial banks. um, And their motives are just simply different than yours or might be in generating return by owning a bond. Um, A simple thing that I think is interesting about fixed-income markets is the turnover. Bonds mature. 20% of the market, on average, rolls over each year, which creates opportunities to do new things and create alpha. Um, A company may have one stock, but have dozens, hundreds of CUSIPs of different bonds. And so, your ability to select where you want to be in that capital structure, where you want to be on the curve is just that much more. And so, for all those reasons, We think that you can generate more attractive returns with an active strategy and fixed income. And then um, we place those strategies in a mutual fund wrapper, in an ETF wrapper. And that's really about what clients want to consume and how they want to consume it. But our our basic confidence in active versus passive uh, remains completely unchanged, whether we're in a mutual fund context or an ETF context.
2: Is there a case to be made that because we are in a different market regime now than we were, as we were, again, talking about five-plus years ago, that this is a better environment for active? Does the market regime um, help make the case for active, or is active something that is always potentially valuable?
3: Well, I think (laughs) I'm biased, but we think it's always valuable relative to – A a passive alternative. When rates are higher as a starting condition, we think that that amplifies the ability to generate alpha on top of the base rate for sure. And I think that's probably what you're alluding to. And then I think we are in a somewhat volatile and uncertain environment. Um, And you, you, you can see that just in the the headlines on Bloomberg this morning and the debate that's going on in markets about Fed direction. Um, you've seen some decoupling globally, economically, and in rate markets. And those all create interesting opportunities for active management. So we're excited about that. And I guess the one thing I would note is um, we have seen some popularity in passive strategies and fixed income. There's, there's no denying that. Um, but it, we always emphasize a, a, a nimble and, and very resilient approach to investing in fixed income. And we've noticed uh, you know, some use of the passive alternatives to, say, make a big call on duration or a big call on credit. And volatile markets tend to frustrate that kind of approach. So we would encourage advisors, we'd encourage their clients Um, to look at active strategies that can be very flexible, very nimble, navigate through choppy waters and still come out to a good outcome on the other side.
2: As I was looking through your ETF lineup, one thing that I found interesting is that PIMCO does actually offer several index-based ETFs on both the the equity and the fixed income side. But if we stay on the fixed income side, how do you sort of uh, reconcile that with everything we just discussed regarding active management?
3: Yeah, we, we we do. It's about twenty percent of the overall twenty-five billion you cited that that falls into you know more narrowly defined um, index category, um, and you know it's 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 uh, it has a lot to do with client demand. Uh, you know, I mentioned that we have some strategies that are relatively higher discretion, some strategies that are more narrowly focused, and these would be the most narrowly focused amongst those strategies. We still try to use the PIMCO process and the, um, and the PIMCO platform to add value, um, but in a little bit more of a constrained format. Um, and we recognize there are investors out there who prefer to do uh, some of the asset allocation and sector decision-making on their own, and, and we serve that market. It's not a big part of the ETF business. It's certainly not a big part of PIMCO's overall business, but uh, it, it is there.
2: Greg, just about two minutes left. Uh, Before I let you go, I mentioned at the top, PIMCO is a nearly $2 trillion asset manager. You clearly have brand recognition. I I feel like just about every investor and advisor are at least aware of who you are. Uh, You you obviously have in-house expertise in terms of uh, investment capabilities. There's no question about that. So, So given all that, what's next in the ETF space? Because again from my standpoint it seems like you have a lot of potential upside here
3: i appreciate you saying that that that's it's nice of you to point out i i believe all those things about pinco but it's it's obviously it's great to hear from somebody who observes the markets the way that you do and 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 talks to a lot of terrific people i've been listening to your podcast and and uh just just really impressed with the the people you've had on and the commentary i, I wish i had some Flashy answer for you, but I think we're just going to continue on the path that we've been on, um, which is slowly and steadily building out the portfolio of products, really, you know, paying a lot of attention to the products that we have in the market, making sure that, um, you know, I know the portfolio managers at PINCO are are super focused on generating the performance that they expect of themselves and our, our clients expect of us. Um, I'm focused on making sure they're well-serviced, that they're well-supported in the marketplace, uh, that people know about them, to, you know, to your point earlier. And then on the margin, um, you know, we won't be static. We'll be adding product, but I wouldn't expect it to be um, huge amounts and, and, and big, flashy things. We're going to take a more incremental approach to it, make sure that each product that comes off of our platform um, benefits both from a, solving a real client need and having a terrific market opportunity behind it.
2: Well, Greg, best of luck uh, continuing down that path moving forward. Really enjoyed connecting this week. Excellent insight. Thank you for joining me.
3: Nate, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
2: That was Greg Hall, head of U.S. Global Wealth Management at PIMCO. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Direction. If you would like to learn more about the Direction ETFs, You can visit Direction.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Yang Tang, CEO and co-founder of Arch Indices. So he's going to explain their next generation of passive index solutions, which includes the Arch Indices VOI Absolute Income ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.